Thank you, ladies. I just, every Sunday I say the same thing, but I love the music and how you help prepare our hearts for worship. Are your hearts prepared for worship or should they play another five minutes? That's a tough question. I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Baptist Church where we truly are a family of believers. And today is one of those special days uh, that we will see that we are a family. But just a few announcements. We have a, a, a going away meal for John Layton after church, so please show up and shake his hand at least. He's a big galoot, but he's, he's a nice guy. Don't be scared of him. Uh, it's really cool to watch him grow up from a little goober to a big galoot. Uh, but I'm proud of you, brother. I really am. Uh, ladies Bible study tomorrow night. And after church, moms and dads, we have youth choir practice, and we will have choir practice, Lord willing, every Sunday. So just plan on it. And Isaac's got an announcement. Morning, everybody. Just real quick, I want to announce um, the True Church Conference for 2024. This is something we've uh, participated in several years in a row now. This is Anchored in Truths. Uh, annual conference at their church in Muscle Shoals. Uh, the dates for that are February 15th through the 18th. That is a Thursday through a Sunday. Uh, you're welcome to attend the whole thing, but we will typically take a group um, and, and carpool down there. It's a three-hour drive, uh, but we will go on the Friday, leave Friday morning, come back Saturday afternoon. So those dates are the 16th and 17th. Um, again, that's the True Church Conference. You can check that out online. Just uh, Google True Church Conference 2024. You can see uh, the lineup of speakers. Um, I don't think the schedule's out, but you can see a lineup of speakers uh, and the topics of, uh, of the conference. So check that out. And if you have uh, any interest in going, let me know. I'll coordinate the, uh, the trip and uh, the hotel stay and travel and, and those sorts of things. So just let me know if you want to go. Thanks. You, Isaac. I have two announcements. One is for uh, this is Thanksgiving week, I think. Time's flying, isn't it? And any case, 7 p.m. on Zoom, I'll go ahead and do a devotional from Psalm 100. I wrote it here. It's really one of my favorite psalms. And But uh, if you want to participate, some of you may or may not, you might be traveling or you have your hands full of something, uh, that's okay. You can just tune in and listen, uh, and, and I'll read the scriptures, do a devotional, and pray. But uh, if you want to share a, a blessing this year, thanking God for what he has done, I'll give you an opportunity to do that. Also, another scripture verse, if you have one that you'd like to share, uh, feel free to do that. That'll be this Wednesday at 7. You can check your regular prayer list, and if you have prayers uh, that you need uh, us to pray for you about, be sure to send them to Gordon. I want to thank Gordon for keeping up with that as well. Um, if you look at this Psalm 100 and you like it <coughs> and, and you want to read that and say something about it, you're welcome to as well. We'll be flexible on that for Wednesday, but I thought we could uh, uh, begin that uh, day uh, prior to Thanksgiving Day as a praise and blessing day. Uh, to God for all that he has done. That's Wednesday, this Wednesday at, and change of the time, it's, it's at 7. All right, 
and it'll it'll go for just a half an hour. So, um, also I want to mention Catherine uh, Layton, my wife. She has gotten some resources together, and I'm going to give this back to her for you to see. Some of your parents are, might look for devotional type resources to teach your kids uh, during this Advent season. And she has a couple good resources that go through each day on how to prepare and plan for Christmas. And so she has some of these items. You can actually look at them and see if that's something that you want to do and to engage your kids in, in that uh, uh, to focus, put the right focus on Christmas. She has this uh, book. This is one of them. The other one is a, another resource that has... Um, some materials with it. I'm not sure how that works, and I don't think she knows either, but uh, you guys can... Okay, so if that makes sense to you, then fine. No, it, it's an activity that has to do with it, and there's theological words on the back. A good, another good teaching item and particularly to to make good use of this season and this time uh, so that their focus is really on those things that are true right and pure and helpful and holy so um, I'll give these resources back to her in just a bit if you want to see her about that particularly at the fellowship uh, meal that we're going to have today uh, you can avail yourself to that and look at that and perhaps you want something there let's go ahead and prepare then to worship Christ our King today, I want to give you a moment privately to prepare your heart, confess your sin, recognize that Christ um, is faithful and he will forgive. So take a moment to cleanse your heart before Christ, to prepare, ask for him to speak to you in the way you need to hear from him today in all the expressions of his truth in this worship hour. Take a moment privately, and then I'll pray for us corporately as we prepare. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. O oh, Father, on behalf of your people, we gather together. We desire to joyfully sing from the heart, to, to, to lead the, the world, really, in praises to your holy name. May we have the conviction of heart to, to, to serve you with great joy, recognizing that you have given us the privilege to come into your presence. And in doing so, in seeing and beholding the wonder of who you are, we do so in, in great singing. May we be full of the Holy Spirit, completely controlled, and express that in our song of praise to you today. Father, it is a great privilege that we indeed know you. We know you because you have revealed yourself to us. You have changed our heart and given us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart that can truly respond to your truth. You have gathered us together like sheep, sheep in a, in a pasture that is provided for as your people. And so we come to you, Lord, today in great thanksgiving and great praise. 
We praise you for who you are. We bless your name for who you are and who you will always be. I pray, Father, that we would increasingly know that indeed you are good, perfectly good, that your love is something that is faithful and endures forever, that you are faithful not only in the past, but to the future. May our hope and trust be in you and you alone. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Let's take our hymn books and stand and turn to number 506. 506. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. special commissioning for Airman First Class John Layton. So I'd like for you to come on up 
if you will, John, and I'd like for your mother to come on up. She's what? Well, okay, the whole church, come on up. <laughs> You're all involved. Your sister, you can come on up. She's in the army. Reserves. She's a vocalist. Yeah, everybody's in the Whoever you want, come on up. Is that enough? Did you bring his Bible? No. I forgot everything. Okay. She forgot everything. So um, we have a Bible floating around for you, John, that people have written in some of their scripture verses of how they wanted to encourage you. As John is preparing to go off to basic training, I get to drive him to Montgomery this afternoon. That'll be fun. And then I get to drive back by myself. So, in uh, any case, um, you think you're in the Air Force, they'd be able to fly you down there and back, but apparently not. <coughs> the government's saving some money, I guess. Uh, John is going into the reserves with the Air Force. He has worked really hard, and uh, he has volunteered with the Civil Air Patrol. That's an auxiliary of the Air Force for a number of years, and it t exceeded much more than we thought he would. He ended up uh, getting, what's your final award, the Eker Award, and, uh, and as a cadet, he got the, um, the, I guess it's a lieutenant colonel, if I have it correct, and because of his work there, they uh, pushed him up three, uh, to the third level rank, that's why he's a, instead of an airman basic, you're first class, uh, he'll be entering in there. That shows a lot of your effort and diligence and, and work in that, and we're proud of you for that. Uh, John is also working as an EMT, and uh, not quite a year yet, but he's already finished two of his courses there, both uh, ba the, the uh, standard EMT, and now he's finished the advanced EMT. Is that correct? Okay. Working on paramedical and other things. So if I get ill, he can take care of me. That's the whole point. <coughs> In any case, and so we, we do... Uh, we are proud of you and your service. He's going to be doing the same type of thing, this emergency medical uh, care, but this time with the Air Force on reserves, uh, they'll be doing it in a C-130 instead of an ambulance. So uh, that's exciting for a young man, as I understand. So he likes the lights and sirens, and now you'll have a big turboprop jet, if I got that right, uh, running around doing that too. So that's exciting. Uh, I do want you, if, when we have our fellowship lunch, if you want to put some notes in his Bible, uh, highlight a particular verse why he's gone to do this uh, basic training. Uh, if Catherine ever finds that, we'll get it to you um, at the fellowship and hopefully allow John to bring that with you uh, during that time. So I asked John, I said, what's your favorite verse? And, and here I got Ecclesiastes uh, one, two, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. I guess he has been listening to his dad way too much. I put in his Bible and, and encouraged him from chapter 12 in uh, Ecclesiastes here, a charge uh, to, to listen to the, um, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the holy, is this, this is the whole duty of man. And uh, we trust you in that, John. 
And we're thankful for your commitment to Jesus Christ, your confession of him as Lord. You're going to be going to a, a dark place at times with all kinds of people, but you'll be bringing the light of truth. Know that your congregation, the people, will be praying for you. And I look out here, and I, I won't sit here and call out all your names because I'd have to call them all. Of those of you who have contributed to this day and to John's uh, growth uh, as a, a, in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Uh, you guys, many of you remember how he was just a little boy running around here. I see some smiles, yes. And now he's a big boy here, isn't he? So we've, we fed him a little too well, I suppose. In any case, um, we're excited for you. Uh, we know there's some great difficulty. We're thankful for your... Um, your service, in many cases, that seems to be a bent of your heart to be able to help people, and uh, you have done that, but you're also bringing hope, hope to many people, and sometimes in great dire circumstances, uh, life and death, and what a great privilege it is to be able to send the gospel in unique places where God has fit us. We all have an occupation, that what occupies our time. But we all have, have a calling, a vocation that we do. And our calling and our vocation, what we want to commission you for, is proclaiming Christ. Christ ultimately is the answer to all. We'll be praying for you, and we have a gift for you as well to remind you of that, a presentation that we're giving you here today in this commissioning service for you. Uh, these are wisdom prayers from the Puritans called the Valley of Vision. And you're going to need a good model to pray because uh, you'll need a lot of prayers. And so we want to give you this as well as just a token appreciation on behalf of the church and for you to know that we are certainly praying for you. Let me go ahead and call the elders now to come and lay hands on John as we commission him and for this next stage in his life. John will be gone for basic and then Im immediately some advanced <coughs> training. He's able to skip a little bit because he's already re received some of his credentials through his EMT work, and so that's good. We'll have you back, Lord willing, by the end of April. And he told me unless he dies or gets injured, something like that. Real positive on all of that. Thanks. Um, let us pray for you. Father, we're thankful for your goodness to us. We're thank you. I'm thankful for having a son. Um, a son that has honored his mother and his father. He has honored his teachers. He's honored those that are in authority as he'll continue to do so. A man that has been de demonstrated very respectful in life because he fears you. And that's the greatest joy, to have a son that confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and fears you. And will teach others to do the same by example and by what he does in his life. Father, I pray that you will protect him and keep him and make your face shine upon him. I pray, Father, that he indeed would be a light in dark places. And for those times in which he might feel alone, I, I pray that he would sense always your presence with him, both now and forevermore. I pray, Father, that you will give him courage, you'll give him conviction, that is consistent with the character of who you have made him to be. I pray that you'll continue 
conform him into the image of Christ. And we look forward to a day in which we all stand in your glorious presence, praising you for all that you have done. And I pray for your blessings to be upon him and uh, for now and days ahead. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Congratulations and God bless you, son. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. Blessed are the pure in heart because they will see God. Let's stand again and take our hymn books and turn to number 578. 578, Rejoice, ye pure in heart. Seven, five. My heart is filled with thankfulness to him who bore my pain.
Good morning. Today we'll be reading from Acts chapter 21, verses 18 through 36, and that'll be found on page 930 in your pew Bible. Again, that's Acts chapter 21, verses 18 through 36, found in page 930. If all is vanity under the sun, let us focus on what is truly not vain, what is worthwhile. Let us read the word of God. Verse 18. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands are among the Jews who, of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, We have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immortality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, carrying out, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophius and Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, the word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he, who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came into the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. 
Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful day that you've given to us to be able to glorify you, Lord, to learn more about your wisdom. Thank you for the many wonderful things you give us in this life, from the sun to the sky to this church, Lord, that we have to worship you and to remember the many great things you've done for us. We pray that your will be carried out as it always is, as especially in this time, we pray for our brothers in Israel, Lord, that they uh, would have safety and peace. But most importantly, remember the most important part, that you are sovereign, Lord, and that your grace alone saves. And even in the midst of war, chaos, and confusion, you are the one true peace and light of our way. We pray that you would bless this offering, Lord, that would be used for your glory, and that it would go forth and many people would learn of your wisdom your grace, and your true glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.
Let's stand once more and take our hymn books and turn to number 583. Give thanks to God for he is good, his love endures forever. 583. <clears throat> Amber and ladies, and indeed God's love endures forever, and that's a great psalm to sing and know. This morning I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, and then we're going to take another deep dive into Exodus, Exodus uh, 25, so, and, and thereabouts. We'll look at a few texts, so be prepared for that. We're going through our series, if you haven't been with us, through the book of Hebrews, verse by verse. We've slowed down a little bit to talk about the details of this tabernacle. The Hebrews didn't need the details, but I think we do and would benefit from looking at its reference in the Old Testament. The preacher of Hebrews, essentially preaching a sermon to his congregation of Jewish believers, they're tempted to go back to the ritual of Judaism as opposed to embracing the reality of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who has fulfilled everything that has been prophesied about and then certainly pictured in the Old Covenant. This tabernacle is is symbolic, if you will. And you can find that in verse 9 of Hebrews 9 as he makes that point. It is something real. 
It is something physical, and it had benefits in and of itself. But it had a pointer, and here we're helped by the text. We talked about hermeneutics earlier in our class. Uh, this is the, uh, this, the art and science of biblical interpretation. It helps when the author tells us it, there is a significant meaning of certain things. And here he does. This is symbolic. It is emphasizing and illustrating what he's trying to point to, and that is the superiority of Jesus Christ. He's better than all of the rituals of the Old Covenant because he is indeed the reality. He is the substance to which all of these symbols pointed. These Hebrews were alert, if you will, specifically for Judaism, but it, it was really the cultural norm of the day. That's what they were being led toward. And he warns them to do that is going to lead away from the living God. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ, not even in the ritual of Judaism, for that only pointed to the reality of Jesus Christ. He is the Deliverer, the Messiah, the Savior, and everything else really pales by comparison. In chapter 9, the chapter that we're in now, he's going to appeal to a familiar practice, which is symbolic. The tabernacle, or the tent of worship, they carried with them from their bondage in Egypt. They actually were bound in Egypt. And then they actually traveled through the wilderness, and they were headed to the promised land. And you can see symbolically what that also points to. For those, by way of application, bound in sin, delivered by God, but must journey in time, through a wilderness journey, and it leads to the promised land or the very presence of God, the fulfillment. It pointed to that. It pictures that in a dramatic way. But along the way, during that wilderness journey, they, they had this tent with them, this tabernacle. And, and we've looked at some of those details that he doesn't discuss. Every Scripture is profitable. Some of the Old Testament for us becomes flyover country. And some have even said, well, we, we just really need to unhitch because now we have the New Testament. What do we need the Old? Well, if you read the New Testament, it, it refers to and quotes the Old Testament time and time again. It is necessary. It is from those scriptures that point to and picture Christ. And so it lays the foundation to understand what is going on even now. Thus far, we have looked at this structure called the tabernacle, this tent, the meeting, in which God met with his people, <coughs> pictured that way in a physical way so they could grasp it, because they're physical and real people. We've looked at it. We've looked at the, the, the superstructure around it, essentially a fence, if you will, courtyard, it is called, it, it is the way to God, the way to God and, and demonstrates Christ's life here 
in his incarnation. First, as you walk through this wide gate that can uh, accommodate all who will come, come in. And where will you see first? That is the altar picturing the atonement made by Christ. And the second object in that courtyard would be the laver, picturing the sanctifying, the cleansing. Christ, who sanctifies us in the truth. Then you have this structure itself, this tent, if you will, with two rooms, essentially. The holy place and then the most holy place. You go through the way into the courtyard to, to the place of atonement, to the place of, of cleansing. Then you go through the truth, the truth that is in Christ. This first room, this holy place, it pictures heaven in Christ's mediating work on our behalf. Three artifacts there, the light, the lampstand, if you will, the table of showbread that is there, and the altar of incense, which we talked about last time. Light, this illumination that comes to us by Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we might see Christ and no longer be blind, that we might feast and feed on him this table of showbread, and that he would indeed mediate for us in prayer as this altar of incense demonstrates, but not just his alone, but ours mixed with that as well, pleasing to God. We've looked at that. <coughs> now we're going to step into the next room, if you will. That way of life which Christ, again, mediates. It pictures the most holy place, pictures the very throne room of God. And to set it in its context, let's just pick it up at verse 1 in Hebrews 9, and then <coughs> we'll jump to Exodus 25 to provide the details that he doesn't have to provide for them, but I think would be helpful for us. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now, <coughs> excuse me. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place for holiness. For a tent was prepared. That's the tabernacle that he's talking about. The first section in which there was a lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it's called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was the second uh, section called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense. And as we mentioned before, this incense is right up against the veil. On the Day of Atonement, it's brought in there, and that's uh, why it's associated with this most holy place as well. It's associated with both rooms. He's not making a mistake. That's intentional. He's talking about the Day of Atonement when the altar uh, of incense, when the incense is brought in a censer into that room. But then he notices an artifact and the Ark of the Covenant. <coughs> then he describes what's in it. It's an Ark of a Covenant, all sides with gold, in which had a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And then above it, that is above this Ark, it was a cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And then he says, of these things we cannot speak in detail. Again, they didn't need it. We do. I think it would help us to look for you to mark it and help you as you read through the scriptures that you might have a better connection to what's going on. So we are going to look at the details and primarily today 
concerning this object, this artifact called the Ark of the Covenant. So let's go to Exodus 25 to get the rest of the story, to get the details that they were very familiar with. Exodus 25. And I'm going to go ahead and jump back to verse 1, just so we can get a running start and make a point here before we get to verse 10 <coughs> that speaks specifically of this ark. Notice here in verse 1 of Exodus 25, the Lord then tells Moses, he says, speak to the people of Israel that they would make a contribution from every man whose heart who moves him, you shall receive a contribution for me. Now, by the way, this is under the old covenant. They, and I, I understand what we call our giving tithes and offerings, and that's fine. Technically, those tithes were taxes that they had to pay as part of the old covenant. They still gave free will offerings as well, and that's the imagery here. And this is what God requires, really, and wants, is giving from the heart. We don't stress a lot of this. We don't uh, demand or keep records so that we can figure out what you did and didn't give. We do keep records for you to tell the tax man. That's nice, because he helps you out. Why not with that? But here, it really demonstrates what giving is. Giving is as abundant of the heart. It's a, it's a thanksgiving response. And, and so in bringing these materials that were necessary to build this edifice, this tabernacle, this portable worship center, if you will, he asked them to do it from their heart to make a contribution. And he describes the kinds of things that he wants. This is, <coughs> this is what you'll receive, gold and silver and bronze. And obviously, if you read, as we've already done, read some of the items, you can see these are some of the items they needed to, to build this tent. <clears throat> Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linens, goat's hair, tans, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and fragrant incense. Onyx stones and stones for setting and an ephod and for the breast piece. And let them make me, note this, a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Now, this sanctuary that they're making, that God would dwell, remember, he's not confined in that. God is omnipresent. He isn't confined by that. But that helps them to remember that God's with them. A lot of times we, we might be in a position where we think, oh, we're all alone. God isn't with us. Yes, he is. And for those that are in Christ in a specific presence, in a specific way, I am with you in, until the end of the age. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm not going to leave you like an orphan. And here's the same imagery here, but they needed a reminder. And so do we at times. <clears throat> so I provided a reminder of where God would meet <clears throat> with his people. 
And notice verse 9, he says, do this exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Didn't leave it up to their own idea, their own idea, uh, design. God had a very specific way in which he was going to worship, including how these pieces were put together. Because you know why? They uniquely communicated something. You know what they uniquely communicate? In general, Christ. Now, it's hard to break down every little last detail, and I don't think we need to do that. We don't need to see every tree, but you do need to see the forest. What's the forest? Christ. That's the big picture, right? So anyway, that's the background to it. And then specifically, he's going to talk about the ark. Notice here the priority of the ark. Before anything else is done, the ark is talked about. Verse 10. You shall make then this ark of acacia wood. We've already talked about this wood. This wood is an indestructible wood. Insects wouldn't have eaten it from that period of time. This would have been a good material to make. It is out <coughs> to endure. Two cubits and a half. It shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it then with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it. You shall make a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold and put, it, put them on its feet, two rings on the side of it, and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them, overlay them with gold as well. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain on the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. Notice how precise he is on all of that. This is the tabernacle. This is a portable unit, so it has a practical aspect with the way it is designed. But he's very specific there. In verse 16, he tells them <coughs> to put something into it. The ark, as you can imagine, is a box, and we'll talk about it in a minute. But he wants to put something in it. Put the testimony that I give you. So he will give him the testimony. Another way to describe that would be we would think of it as the Ten Commandments or the tablets. They're going to go into this box. And then he says, verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Now, essentially, that's something else, but it's going to be attached to the ark and fixed to it. And he gives precise description of how that top that lid, if you will, of the ark is to be made. He said, two cubits and a half be its length, cubit and a half its breadth, and you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make on them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end, and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat you shall make the cherubim on, two, on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another toward the mercy seat, <coughs> and their faces of the cherubim shall be. Verse 21, and you shall put the mercy seat then on top of the ark, hence the lid, as I described, and the ark you shall put and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. Again, he repeats that idea that where the tablets of uh, Ten Commandments will go inside there. And then notice verse 22. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, 
from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So here God creates this artifact, tells them to create this artifact, precise instruction, and it, it pictures a reality of what God would do and really helpful in communicating a lot of great truth. We won't be able to delve into half of it, but I'll just at least introduce you to it. I do want to add one other thing, and that is in how it is um, placed, particularly. And for that, you can slip, uh, you'll come back to 25, we'll, we'll address some of this, but slip over to 26 and drop down to verse 31. <coughs> He's talking about once you make this holy place, most holy place, you shall make a veil then of purple, a blue and purple, and verse, I'm at verse 31 and 26, and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully work into it. That's this veil, what it looks like, and it has angelic beings embroidered in it. And you shall hang it on the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on its four bases of silver. Notice those items that we talked about in 25. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. Those are the two rooms. Holy place of the most holy. And you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that we would gain insight for your word. You have preserved these instructions that are given in great detail to your people at a specific time, a historical time, to picture to the reality which is Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would see the glory of Christ in all that you have commanded and all that you have done. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our focus this morning, as I mentioned, is going to be on this symbolic art. This, it is a real item, and it was used as an artifact in their worship. Uh, I did get a little picture of it, of what it might have looked like. It's on the back of your worship folder to kind of help you get it. I, I think it's... It, it's um, explained well enough in detail in the text for you to get, but sometimes it's helpful to look at an imagery of what it might actually look like when it's completed. Essentially, it is a wooden box overlaid with gold. It was about, we're not into cubits here, but it would have been about four feet, imagine, um, long, and somewhere around two and a half feet wide and two and a half feet high. In scripture, it's an important artifact. It's mentioned a couple of hundred times in scripture. So it isn't something minor. And remember, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is his express uh, word and it is profitable. And so it's helpful to, to know about it. In scripture, you're going to find somewhere around 20 different ways to actually 
describe this particular ark. It's called the Ark of the Covenant in Hebrews chapter 9 as we look to. Other places might call it the Ark of Might or the Holy Ark, the Ark of God, the Ark of Yahweh. And here in Exodus is called the Ark of the Testimony. And of course, the testimony refers to the Ten Commandments that were told that Moses was instructed to actually put into this box. There's many references to it, but you can already see in our text, if you want to drop back to verse 22 in Exodus 25, the text gives us a clue what this is all about. It's symbolic. It's symbolic of where God will meet with his people. Notice verse 22. There I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. And that God will speak from that position. Now, you need to note this. Remember, though, that God uh, commands this and describes this and puts this um, uh, in place. But yet, this is not God in a box, some sort of mysterious and superstitious artifact, if you will. As I mentioned, God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. He can't be contained to a locality. This, this holy box, if you will, is simply put together as a reminder of, to Moses and to the children of Israel of God's holy presence with them. Again, they might think when things go bad, uh, things don't work out as expected, that somehow God has left them. God never leaves his people. And that's important to know. And here it is dramatized. You know why? They've got it. They've got it with them. This is an artifact to remind them that God, who is a spirit, is actually with them. The ark had these angelic figures, if you, be, if you will, that are mentioned specifically, cherubim. <coughs> They're on the top. They indicate the very presence of God. The, cher the cherubim, or these angelic figures that are on there, they suggest the idea of God's throne room, if you will. From Exodus, and I'll just read it for you, you don't have to turn, it's, it's two chapters away, 37.9, the cherubims, it describes them again, it says they spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another, towards the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. That, that symbol that is um, done is, is expressed in, uh, in a way in which communicates God's presence. Psalm 99.1, the Lord reigns. So you see God as a majesty on high. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. And here's the idea of a fear of God. And how is God described in Psalm 99? He is enthroned upon the cherubim. That's what these figures portray. They are shaped in such a way, notice, their, their, their wings overshadow that other artifact that really becomes part of the ark, and that is called the mercy seat, which will unfold in, in time. 
But that very seat, that seat of mercy, these angelic figurines then are bowed down, their faces pointed to one another and gazing, if you will, down to this other object that's on top of the ark, and it's called the mercy seat. <coughs> From Leviticus 16, I'll read it for you. It tells what the priest did with this mercy seat. And he shall take some blood of the bull and sprinkle on the day of atonement. He would sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side and the front of the mercy seat. He shall sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times, illustrating the concept of perfection. This is this symbolic ritual that's done and the picture of these angelic beings then that draw their focus to the mercy seat. It reminds me, and I think largely, of what Peter has in his mind when he tells us about um, the revelation of the truth of the gospel that unfolds all throughout the Bible progressively, that becomes in greater clear understanding when Christ actually does die. He actually does uh, uh, rise again, and he actually ascends on high. Peter would say that those who wrote about this in 1 Peter 1, 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. The, in the things that they have now been, that have now been announced through those who preached the good news to you through the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. We have the answer to that symbolic picture, and particularly, I'm, I'm noting just uh, you know everything, but beyond that, the the picture of the angelic beings that are intently gazing on this mercy seat. What what is so interesting to them? Peter will say this: things in which angels long to look. Now he doesn't explain exactly why. This is of great interest or why when somebody comes to Christ, all of heaven is in great worship. They're a lot more excited about any of this than any of us. But we should be. And we can learn a lot from what they portray and what they actually do. In reality, the angelic host are very interested in what goes on in the preaching of Christ. Today, they're the most attentive in the audience, although they've heard this time and time again. If you know anything about, about uh, history and how it unfolds, the angelic beings, they, they fell as well. The, the third of the host of heaven followed the father of lies, the devil. We call them demons now. But what plan of salvation did they have? None. God justly condemned them to eternal judgment for the rebellion against God. And those that remained, he elected them to eternal life. It's different with creatures of mankind. It's vastly different. They long to look in, what, what is God doing? He's displaying his mercy, that's what he's doing. In the condemnation of the angels, justly, he demonstrates that justice. 
But there are other aspects of God. We call it his glory, the beauty of his divine attributes that wouldn't otherwise be seen without the redemption of mankind. You know what it is? It's the biggest word is mercy. Mercy is not giving us what we deserve. And I like to tongue-in-cheek say, so people ask me, and I know it's cliche, but, but it, it means something to me, and hopefully it doesn't irritate you, but they'll say, um, how are you doing? I say, better than I deserve. And you know what? I really mean it. That, it, that perspective can change everything if you've received mercy. The angels, no, no mercy. Justice, and it's fair, and it's right, and it's good. But God is glorious and he's good and he has desired to demonstrate his mercy on, on mankind and grant it. And I assure you, this is the most interesting subject angelic beings could ever hear or listen, although they heard it thousands and thousands and thousands of times. It never gets old. You know what they're doing? Isaiah had a vision of it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. That's what they see. Let me give you a, a brief history of this ark, and then I'll try to give you some of its significance, just so that you'll know. Um, if you don't get anything else, I mean, that's what you should see it as, as, as an artifact to remind us of God's, not only his presence, but also his mercy. From Erdman's dictionary, it gives us a brief history of it. I'll, I'll review some of it, <coughs> just so that you know what was done with it. Basically, this tabernacle, by the way, it, 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 it's built around the ark, right? The ark's built, then the tabernacle. That's the whole purpose of the tabernacle, is for the very throne of God. It was entrusted specifically to the family of the Kohathites, who they carried the the ark around, hence those little poles on it, uh, a, a specific group of, of Levites that were entrusted to carry that whenever they broke camp and to set it up in, sp in special times and events you can find uh, where the priests then uh, carry it in, in great ceremony. Uh, one of them was when they crossed the Jordan River. It was the ark who went ahead of them showing the very presence of God. And in that case, the priests were called to do so. You can find that in Joshua chapter 3. In Jericho, you remember that, when the walls fell down, you'll find the ark there, the priests carrying it in, in, um, in, um, in the rededication of the, of the people after Ai. You'll find it there. In Solomon's dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, <coughs> as well, the priests are carrying it. And it, they carried, when the ark was brought to Shiloh, uh, the priests carried it to there as well with the, the period of the time of the, of the judges. When the Israelites were defeated by the uh, Philistines at Ebenezer, they, they lost the ark. You can find that in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And that's an amazing story where their enemies were afflicted with plagues and, and were compelled to send it back and gets the idea of the mystery of it. No, it just represents God's sovereignty and that he will not be defiled. The Lord severely punished them 
for their disrespect and their curiosity. You find that in 1 Samuel chapter 6. Um, it was David who decided to move the ark then back to Jerusalem. You might remember a story about Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab. They carried it in a, in a new cart that replaced that upon the and they, uh, they put the ark on it, the ark that had been captured. The oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached his hand out and took hold of the ark to keep it from falling, and he was killed. God doesn't always punish in proportion to what we do, but in, in this case, he, he did because, remember, it had poles on it, <laughs> and it was to be carried by certain people. It wasn't to be put on a cart and run around. David then moves this ark to the house of Obed-Edom. And three months later, he brought it into Jerusalem, and they rejoiced. There are psalms that talk about this ark, 24, 47, 68, about bringing the ark back to Zion, which is Jerusalem. You note that Solomon later would place the ark in the fixed temple that he built. You can find that in 1 Kings chapter 8. <clears throat> and he didn't take it with him into battle. Instead, let it rest in the temple. This would remain there and uh, from, from that point forward until the destruction of Jerusalem. Let me talk about the significance of it. That's the background and the story of it. But I think it's helpful to, to know the significance of it. And one aspect of it is that eventually this presence of God, symbolized by the ark, would be lost. And for that, you can see it in Jeremiah chapter 3. And then we'll move to back to Hebrews chapter 8. Jeremiah chapter 3. In Jeremiah chapter 3, Jeremiah <coughs> talks about the ark of God, which is, represents God's throne. Um, and he indicates that it, that, um, it, would then, it would be lost and then restored. He said, verse 16 of chapter 3 of Jeremiah, And when you have multiplied them and faithful in the land those days, declares the Lord, they shall, say, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. In other words, there, so, so something's happened to it. It's gone. It's not going to be missed. And they're not going to make it again. In other words, they're not going to replace it. Get it? He's talking about a future date. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of God. That's what it symbolized. You didn't need that symbol anymore because Jerusalem will be called the throne of God and all nations shall gather to it to the where? The presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land to the north, to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. This doesn't look like it's going to happen. He, he's pointing to a future date. 
He's pointing to the fact that they're going to, to lose it all and then it's going to be regained. It's not going to be regained and built in some model of that truth, but in the reality of it. When all Israel will be saved. If you want to know the future of that land, that's the future. Jeremiah talks about it. That's a day that hasn't happened yet. Israel, speaking to the northern kingdom, Judah, speaking to the southern, they haven't repented. But I, I have good news for you. They will. There will be a day when Jesus Christ will sit on his throne in Jerusalem. It's called the Millennial Kingdom, and it'll happen. Let's jump over to Hebrews 8. He takes the same idea and ideology here from the Old Testament. Speaking of Christ, I'm back in Hebrews 8. <coughs> We've already preached this whole chapter, but just to remind you and show you the connection of it and how he's reaching back into the Old Testament. He says the point that we're saying all the way up to this point, he's pointing out to the mediating work of Jesus Christ. He is a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister of the holy place is the true tent of the Lord that the Lord set up, not man. You get it? The true not in the other was false. The true in this is the perfection, the completion of it. The symbol sees the reality. For every high priest appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus is necessary for this priest also to offer something. Now if he were on earth, which he's not, he wouldn't be a priest at all because he's not under the Levitical system. We've talked about that. There are priests who do so according to the law. But they serve as, verse 5, notice, a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he's speaking of the tabernacle again, he was instructed by God, saying that you make it according to the pattern I've shown you on the mountain. We went through some of those details. There's a lot of it. But as Christ has obtained a ministry that is more excellent than the old covenant because the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. For that first covenant had been faultless, there had been no occasion to look for a second for he finds fault with him when he says, and by the way, he's quoting Jeremiah again. Jeremiah 31 is where you can find this reference. In other words, he's looking at the old covenant a temporary covenant, a covenant that didn't bring about perfection because it was never intended to bring about perfection. It was only created to point to the one who could. That is Christ. All people who have been saved, if they have been saved, is through Christ and Christ alone. And here's the prophecy. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll establish a new covenant with, note, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's the same thing he said in chapter 3, too. It's going to happen. There, there'll be a future. You won't need this artifact because you'll have the very throne of God. It is Christ. It's not like the covenant that I made with them, verse 9, <coughs> when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant. Why? Because their evil heart had not been changed. That's why. He said, I showed no concern for them because they broke his covenant. That's why. This covenant that I will make with them, speaking of the new covenant, after those days, declares the Lord, what's the difference? Here it is. I will change their heart. It's speaking of regeneration. I'll instead put the laws into their minds. The, the, the law was there. 
all the time, and they violated it because it wasn't on their heart. They had a disposition to sin, and God's going to change the disposition of their heart. I will write it not on a tablet of stone, but on their hearts, and they will be and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It goes on this phrase, they're not going to have to teach one another because it's a, it's a supernatural work of God's grace. They're all going to know the Lord. Know in how? Know in, in truth. Know in a genuine personal relationship with God. It's not talking about information. It's talking about the idea of being intimately connected with God where you really know God. God says, I will then be merciful toward their iniquity. That, that's what that, that, that seat was demonstrated all the time, his mercy towards them. I will be merciful toward their iniquity, and then I will remember their sins no more. Remember, the idea of remembering isn't that God forgets anything. He chooses not to count it against him. He doesn't impute what they deserve. He imputes Christ's righteousness and takes our sin and imputes it to Christ. That's the idea of remembering. Speaking of a new covenant, he makes then the first one obsolete. It's becoming obsolete, growing old, and ready to vanish away. Guess what's going to disappear? And it did, historically. The ark. Okay? It's not some mysterious box running around. There's fanciful stories about this where, you know, it's kind of interesting, but it's sci-fi. Raiders of the Lost Ark. God knows where it is. It's in heaven. It's never been lost. It was intentionally destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 by Nebuchadnezzar. This, this temple, this, this ark was destroyed in that. There's no mention in this second temple by Zerubbabel or the refurbished one by, by Herod that we, we know about today that existed in Jesus' time. The Holy of Holies didn't contain the ark in the second temple. You understand that? It wasn't there. It was in the tabernacle, and that's why he points back to the tabernacle. The, history tells us that they, they, according to Jewish tradition, they had some sort of stone erected in there for the Day of Atonement. The ark has no mystical powers in and of itself. It just simply represents the very throne of God. And if you rebel against God, you're going to not have his presence. And you're not going to be allowed to come to his presence. The only way you can come is through Christ. He's the way. He's the truth. And he's the life. Look to Christ. And this throne aspect brings you into the most intimate relationship with God, and that's called life. You know what eternal life is? Knowing God. Truly knowing him. That's life. You think life's having, we, we enjoy our fun, our excitement, our entertainment, and all of that. Hmm. Those are just, those are just shadows. We ha you have no idea. I think I have time, I'll maybe, 27 more pages, let's see. <coughs> I want to take you to another Old Testament. This just gives me an opportunity to go to the Old Testament, encourage you to look at it, to see the connection to the new. I think it's really important, particularly in Hebrews, to understand what in the world he's trying to talk about and say, 
Um, I think it's helpful maybe to look at this uh, prophecy of life called the Valley of Dry Bones. And I won't do it justice. I'll just go to fly through it because of our time. But I just want to whet your appetite and maybe you'll look at it later. You can find it in Ezekiel's prophecy, Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37. This is a prophetic vision about the restoration of the Jewish nation. Nothing here indicates otherwise. The Gentiles, us, we will receive the, the blessings, the Abrahamic covenant in which all nations will be blessed. But the salvation here is the reestablishment of God's throne pictured as the ark and it's in, integral for its fulfillment to be reestablished to bring about life. It does picture the idea of regeneration. And what a great illustration when you think of bones coming to life. And I'll just highlight some of it. Verse 21, this is a prophecy. This is a pre prophetic proclamation. Thus says the Lord, I'm in Ezekiel 20, 37, 21. Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations which they've gone, and I'm going to gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And there'll be one king over them all. They will no longer be two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. That's what happened. It was their sin. Israel and uh, Judah, as we call it, two nations, north, south, both of them destroyed. The north utterly destroyed. They couldn't even tell their genealogy. The south destroyed. They did preserve their genealogy because from the south, Christ would come, and that would be important because you know what? There's a king coming, okay? And you had to trace him back. There's going to be a king, a king over all of them. And what will be their condition? They will not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgression. They're going to have a change of heart, a new direction. I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Now, who does all of that? How is that possibly going to happen? It's, it, again, you, you can apply this to, to regeneration of life. It's God who will do that. He says, I will, I will. Besides their sin, I'm going to cleanse them, and they will be my people. This is promises. Notice here, restoration, unification, and purification, all of them. This is the fulfillment of what God has promised from the very beginning to, to Abraham, an unconditional covenant that he made with him in Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to make you a great nation, and you go into the land. And in you, all nations will be blessed. That's the other people. That's us, Gentiles. It fulfills the Davidic covenant, which is a subset of the, of the Abrahamic covenant in which a king will sit on the throne forever and ever. How is somebody from these Jewish loins going to sit on the throne forever and ever? He'd have to live forever and ever. We know who he's talking about. Christ. And this fulfills the new covenant covenant 
as well, where it says, I'm going to change their heart. All of them are fulfilled in Christ. It's accomplished by Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. No wonder Paul told the church at Corinth that all the promises of God, all of the covenants of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. They're fulfilled by Christ to the glory of God. If you're still in Ezekiel and I haven't lost you yet, I have two more passages and I think I have time before I have to fly. Verse 24. Ezekiel 37, 24. My servant David shall be king over them and they will have one shepherd. Do you know him? Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. Jesus is the king of kings. He is from that line of David. And what's going to happen? They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. How is that going to happen? They never did it before. They always disobeyed because, again, that new covenant is fulfilled. They're going to, God's going to change their heart. And they shall dwell in the land I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived and to their children and their children's children and they will dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I'm going to make a covenant of peace with them. You want to pray for the peace of Israel? Here's what you can pray. Pray for the soon return of Christ. He makes a difference in all. He will bring judgment to those that are outside of Christ and call many to repent, and they will. He says, I will set them in their land, and then I'm going to multiply them. And I will then set, set my, do you see it, sanctuary in their midst forever and ever. This is talking about the eternal state. All of that that represented this temporary represents this here forever and ever. My dwelling place shall then be with them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. You hear this over and over by the prophets. Then the nations will, that, that's, that's other people other than Israel and Judah. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. It means to set them apart, to make them holy. They'll know it when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. God will do that. The ark is a testimony, as I mentioned, to God's grace and his mercy that is accomplished by one, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. I want, to see, I want you to see this ark one more time before I close. And that will jump to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 11. <clears throat> We're going over some of this in our ministry training hour and precedes this hour. And I invite you to be a part of that if you wish. But here is talks about the end of the age and where this is headed from the complete revelation that is in Jesus Christ. And I want you to see one connection. And the word is going to jump out off the page as you see it in your own, with your own eyes. The, the pers <coughs> perspective, this is in the midst of judgment. During the tribulation period, the seventh angel blows his trumpet, verse 15. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and 
is Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You want to know where the end of the world is going? Where is it all going? This is where it is going. All that has been promised before has been fulfilled in time. We know about it. And that's one of the emphasis that I made. In his first advent, they have been done. It has been done to the letter. And this will be done as well. Look forward to it. The kingdom of the world then has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders, this pictures the church, who sits on their thrones before God, they fell on their faces worshiping God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, and for you have taken your great power and began to reign. It's a reign in, a, in, in, in reality of what all of that pointed to. The nations raged. Those are in rebellion against God. They raged. But your wrath then has come and the time for the dead to be judged, and the rewarding for your servants. This is the eschaton, the end of the age where it's going. Those that are in Christ will be rewarded. Those that are outside Christ, they're going to be judged and, and rightly receive the wrath. Your servants, the prophets and the saints who fear your name, those who will be rewarded, both small and great, those people that you know about and don't know about, and, and for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. So there'll be a time of great reward and a time of great judgment. And here's what I wanted to see. What, what do you make this connection from all the way back to its original design? Then the temple in heaven was open, and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and heavy hail. God is awesome, mighty, glory fills the earth, the Ark of the Covenant, that reality is then expressed. Let us close in prayer. Father, I'm thankful for your word, your explanation of the truth. May we have great resolve and faith to trust you and look forward to a time in which your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to give you just a moment now where you're at to think on these things. Respond to Christ in any way he has spoken to you. Take a moment privately. Father, may we continue to praise your holy name as your servants and bless your name. Thank you for the salvation that is provided for us, the mercy granted to us in Christ and Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand and turn to 582.
Thank you, Lord, 582. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. spoke to Moses saying speak to Aaron and his son saying thus you shall bless the people of Israel and say to them the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace father we're indeed thankful and we do uh, establish these things upon us his people now father we just pray that you would bless those who prepared food and that you would bless our time of fellowship bless it to our hearts and soul and our mind lord and bless the food to our bodies we ask it in jesus name amen